Emmanuel, God with us. We come to celebrate the most amazing event in all of history, the event in which time is measured, the event that changed the world, the event that had been long foretold, the event that was now a reality, the birth of a baby. Birth announcements are a big deal. The baby is born. Through our the years, Suzanne and I have had several birth announcements that have been sent to us. It's a boy or it's a girl. And nowadays, of course, it's easy to do so on social media, whether it be Facebook or Instagram or whatever social media platform you disperse information on. But announcements are a big deal. When we come to Scripture, though, we have the announcement of the birth of the Savior of the world. And it seems to be done in a very unusual manner we have already seen the preparation John the Baptist's dad Zechariah was told that his wife Elizabeth that they were going to have a son and he had come specifically to fulfill the very last promise in the Old Testament given some 400 years before he would be the one coming out of the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord this is what the angel Gabriel said to him and he, speaking of, John, uh, speaking of Zechariah's son, John the Baptist, he said, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him, before the Savior, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. John would prepare the people for the Lord. Now, Mary also was... Uh, spoken to by an angel, an angelic messenger came to her and told her about the fact that she was going to be the mother of the Savior. Gabriel told her, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. Now, don't miss you shall call his name Jesus because he's the Savior. That's what they, then just a little bit later, the angel told the same thing to Joseph about Mary. Don't be afraid to take her as your wife. She will bear a son. You will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And here's what God had foretold. What we just sang, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, the Savior to be born, and the announcement of his birth. Zion read our scripture passage this morning of the birth announcement. Next week, we'll look more in detail at verses 1 through 7, where they came to Bethlehem, and Mary brought forth her, her, her child, her firstborn son, and laid him in a manger because there was no room in the inn. But today we're talking specifically about the birth announcement of the Savior of the world. I want you to notice, again, repeatedly in Scripture, Jesus is identified as the Savior. 1 John 4.14, and we have seen John speaking, one of the disciples who walked with Jesus, spent time with him day by day. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world is born. Let's tell people. Who are we going to tell? Well, let's see. We want to get the word out. Maybe we should go to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was kind of the ruling class of the Jewish religious community. They're the ones who oversaw the worship in the temple. They posted announcements. They gathered the people together for 
festivities. They were the court of the people. If anybody had a platform, the Sanhedrin, the 70 of the Sanhedrin, they, they would have had a platform. But no, the announcement was not given to them. If we're talking about a class or a group of people, maybe we should go to the Pharisees because you guys know the Pharisees, right? They're the most religiously strict people. If you want to know what a religious person is supposed to look like and act like, go to the Pharisee. And if you have any questions about any issue of the law, go to the Pharisee. They are teachers and they are scribes and they live in this and they do have their influencers in their day. But no, the announcement was not made to the Pharisees. Well, what about a secular announcement? What about just a general all-purpose announcement? Who would you tell? You could tell Herod. Herod was the ruler. He was an Edomian. He was not, he was an Edomite. He was not really Jewish, but he was called the king of the Jews because he had been assigned by Rome to govern all this Jewish nation that included Palestine, it included Israel, it included Samaria, included this whole area, even all the way down to south of Jericho. He was the political ruler. Talk about influence. He had massive influence. Maybe the announcement should have been given to Herod. Maybe it would have helped him get his act together a little bit. But no, the announcement was not made to Herod. could have been made to Caesar. After all, Christ is the Savior of the world. And Rome was the center of the world. All roads led to Rome. All roads led out of Rome. And they led to every corner of the known earth. And yet the announcement wasn't made to Caesar. Here's who God told. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field. In the same region, by the way, it's the same region of Bethlehem. We're talking Bethlehem, a small town. The name Bethlehem literally means house of bread. But it's a very small community. Uh, It is, by the way, the neighborhood where King David was born and raised. And... In that small town of Bethlehem, as God had foretold, just south of that city were shepherds out in the town, village, community, really not city. There were shepherds out in the field, and they were doing what shepherds do. They were keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were filled with great fear. I was raised on the King James Version, and we always heard they were sore afraid. I remember asking my dad one time, what does sore afraid mean? And he said, they were so scared it hurt. I'm not quite sure that's an accurate depiction, but I can tell you that this is a good translation. They were terrified. Can you imagine? You're a shepherd out in the field. You're going about your task. You're looking out for wolves and dogs. And other animals that would be a threat to your sheep. And frankly, you're looking out for stupid sheep because sheep aren't right. And they will wander off into the ditch and they'll wander off into the vows and they'll wander off and get lost. And they'll get hurt and they'll get injured. So you're watching the sheep to protect them from themselves, from themselves and to protect them for others. And they're not your sheep, by the way. They're somebody else's. Your labor, your day labor, your hired labor, you're on the job, you're the task. When all of a sudden the angel of the Lord comes and speaks to you. Now, I do want to talk a little bit about shepherds because we tend to romanticize shepherds. David is known as the shepherd king. and We have the 23rd Psalm and the Lord is my shepherd and God calls himself a shepherd. And we tend to think in the Old Testament, shepherds were highly honored and certain they were common and it was a legitimate task and there were whole families that that was their role and their responsibility. But as time comes and as civilization progresses, 
Shepherds are now working class, not the Norman society. They're the lower working class of society. While there was still a lot of agriculture and farming taking place, the role of the shepherd was not a desirable job. It wasn't a desirable job for several reasons. We need to make sure we don't romanticize it. Even when David was tending sheep, you remember David was tending the sheep when Samuel came looking for God's anointed for the next king? All the other brothers were there. They had the better chores, the better tasks, the better jobs. You give the worst task to the youngest kid. Isn't that right? Third or fourth or fifth child? And so David was out watching the sheep. These shepherds were viewed as unskilled labor. As a class of people, they were just poor. They were not wealthy. They were not affluent. They were not even middle class. In the social structure of the day, even in Jewish society, they would have been seen as the lower part of society. They were, as a vocation, seen as a necessity, but it was not an honored vocation. It was not respected. They were not respected as, as professionals. There was no special degree required. There was no special education required. As a matter of fact, we find from other readings of the day that shepherds were largely uneducated, largely from the poor section of town, largely those who depended upon this job simply for sustenance. They were just getting by. They were not scholars. They were not what you would call influencers. As a matter of fact, even in Jesus' day, shepherds, Jewish shepherds, could not go to the temple to worship. They were not permitted into the cultic or the ritual or the ceremonial worship of the Jews. Why? Because sheep, excuse me, sheep are 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They could not observe the cleansing laws of the Sabbath. They could not observe the pre-worship laws, cleansing rituals, the things that they had to do in order to be admitted to the temple for the regular worship. And so they were banned from temple worship because they were ceremonial, unclean, because of the demands of their work. And they couldn't keep the rules of the Sabbath. You know that the, the Sabbath law in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, the uh, Fifth Commandment, was very simple about rest, about needing rest. And the Pharisees had added a lot of their own interpretation to that and made it much more stringent and much more strict even than the original law was intended to be. Man-made laws, and they couldn't maintain those because of the nature of their job. It's interesting to me to note that lambs were still being sacrificed as a part of Jewish worship. You guys may be aware of this. Back in the day when you went to church at the Jewish temple, you would come and you would bring a lamb as an offering and as a sacrifice, and they would actually kill the lamb there. The blood would be poured upon the altar. The meat would be divided. The priest would get some. Some of it they would actually turn right back around and sell to the people or give to the people. But the lamb would be killed as part of God's instructions for how they were to worship. Now, they had regular Sabbath day worship. But then they had other events that they would celebrate from. They had the Feast of the Passover. Massive. Jews came from all over the known world to travel for this. Jerusalem just exploded in population. And they had other gatherings where the Jews would come in and Jews from outlying villages would come in. And every time a child was born, every time a son was to be dedicated in the temple, either a lamb or some turtle doves for the poorer class would be offered as a sacrifice and given to the priest. Now, they're only six miles. Bethlehem's only six miles from Jerusalem. These outlying fields are probably a couple of miles outside the village. And probably these shepherds, it's not 
clearly brought it in the text, so don't attack me. But probably these shepherds were raising sheep that were having lambs that were carried to Jerusalem to be sacrificed. And so the angel comes to these shepherds. It's even more interesting to me, around this time, the shepherds were barred from being witness in criminal and civil court cases in Jerusalem. I don't know if you're aware of that. But because of their task and because of the nature of the folks who made up this task or took, undertook this task, they were viewed as untrustworthy. As a matter of fact, their reputation among most shepherds were that they were thieves. Many of them were poor. All of them were poor. And they behaved with the desperation that poverty brings in culture and in society. So they are an unlikely choice for the first announcement of Jesus, the Savior's birth. So here's a question for you. Engage with me. Don't go to sleep yet. Why them? Why make the first announcement this most unlikely group of people? Caesar didn't know. Herod didn't know. The Pharisees didn't know. The Sanhedrin didn't know. Jerusalem, six miles up the road, the home, the city of David, they didn't know. Right now, very few people know. John and Elizabeth and those who were in their closest circle. Mary and her family, Joseph and his family. But the only ones we had that clearly knew with conviction was a very small group of people. I believe that God is giving a clear message, and it is in the message. By the way, our outline this morning is very simple. The recipients, the message, and their response. But I believe that God is giving a very clear message, and it is in what the angel said to the shepherd. In verse 10, the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for, for who? You can read it. For all the people. For all the people. This message that a Savior is born, the Savior that is necessary, the Savior that is needful, is not simply for some of the people or for the people who are worthy or for the people who have somehow earned it or for the people, even the people who have simply been set apart by God's sovereignty. It's not simply for the Jews. The gospel came to the Jew first and then the Gentile, but the gospel is for all people, for the world. It's not only for the wealthy or the wise. It's not only for the religious or the Jew. It's not only for the educated or the scholar. It's not only for those in society who are socially acceptable. The gospel, the good news is for everyone. Do you remember when Jesus started his ministry? Just a couple of chapters over in Luke chapter 4. Jesus goes to the temple and they hand him the scroll of Isaiah. And according to their custom, he opened the scroll and he began to read from it and he rocked their world. Now, this is not at his birth. This is probably when he did his, in his late 20s, uh, getting close to 30 years old. He begins his ministry, and he says, this, well, and Scripture says, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he enrolled the scroll, and he found a place where it was written. This is Isaiah 60, if you're taking notes, or 61, if you're taking notes. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now, I want you to get this. This is God eternal in human form. Quoting what God eternal said through the prophet in the Old Testament. He's quoting himself. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives 
and the recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. If you're taking notes, you probably already have this down. Number one, under the recipients, it is simply that the gospel is for everyone. The good news is for everyone. Jesus Christ is the Savior, the only Savior of the world. Remember what we read earlier, 1 John 4, 14. And we have seen, John says, and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. So here's what you need to know. That announcement to the shepherds is good news for you. It's good news for you and your kids and your parents and your family. It's good news for those people who are going to be coming to your house for Christmas and those whose house you're going to be going to. It's good news for the people across the street and down the road. It's good news for the world. The recipients, the gospel is for everyone. Jesus Christ is the Savior, the only Savior of the world. So let's take a moment to look upon the wonderful clarity of the birth announcements. You guys ever get confusing messages? Do you ever get a text message and you read it and you think, I have no idea what this person is talking about? Many of us do, and many of us have, and sometimes it's their fault and sometimes it's ours. But it is easy to get confusing messages. Can I, can I tell you that there's great value in brevity and clarity? There is great value in brevity and clarity. Listen to the message. The angel said to them, fear not, don't be afraid. This is a scary event. It's traumatic. Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all people, for unto you is born this day. In the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Listen, this is good news of great joy. Finally, the promise is kept. Finally, the hope of Israel has come. Finally, the one who will save God's people from their sins will arrive. This is the glorious portion of Scripture that points to the promise made and the promise fulfilled. The Savior has come. And that's simply the message, by the way. If you're filling in the blank, you can fill it in based upon the text. The Savior Christ the Lord is born. That's the heart of the message. Now, I do want to talk about what it means to be, uh, to need a Savior. Do we need a Savior? Why does mankind need a Savior? I want to make something abundantly clear because I hear this stuff a lot. And I don't know that you're exposed to it as much as I am, but you may be. And so let me be clear about something. Jesus did not come to save you from your frustrations. He did not come to save you from your sense of insignificance or meaninglessness. Jesus did not come to save you from your anxiety. He did not come to save you from poverty. Jesus did not come to save you from a lack of fulfillment. Jesus did not come to save you from trouble and take all your problems away. I hope that doesn't surprise anybody here. That's not why he came. In reality, there's no guarantee in this life that you're going to be completely rescued from experiencing or being exposed to any of those things. So Jesus, a Savior, is born to save us from what? And this may surprise some of you. He came to save you from himself, from the wrath of a holy God. You see... And I'm going to get lost on this point because it's so significant. I say get lost. I'm going to leave my notes on this point because this is such an important thing that we've got to grasp. 
Sometimes we think, I want to be a Christian because he makes life better. True or false? Well, it's true. He makes life better. But I will tell you, he didn't make life better like you thought he was going to make life better. He didn't make life better by making sure you got plenty of money and all the nice cars to have and the latest technology and everybody's going to love you. That's not how he makes life better. You know how he makes life better? He takes your old life and he swaps it out and gives you a new one, gives you his life. And it costs you everything. You see, we need a Savior because we can't save ourselves. We are separated from a holy God who is loving and merciful and gracious, but we are separated from Him by sin. Sin inherited, sin committed. And sin has to be punished. And so God, to save us from the justice that we deserve from a holy God took on the likeness of sinful flesh even to the point of death on a cross that we might have life. When I was a kid, we always talked about being saved or being not saved. Is that familiar terminology? Not or shake, I need to know. I'm going to stop here until somebody moves. Okay. Not or shake. We were talking, are you saved? Are you saved? I'm saved. Have you been saved? But the language has really moved away from that. And we talk about being disciples and being saints and being Christians, and those are biblical words, and I'm not opposed to those, but I really appreciate just the concept of I have been saved. Why? Because I didn't earn it. I wasn't worthy of it. I didn't start it. I didn't finish it. I didn't make it happen. You know how I got saved? He saved me. The picture of being saved is being rescued, of being delivered. The picture that we always had that, that I have most clearly in my mind from experiences of younger was drowning, being in the water, being over my head, going to certain death. I don't know how you learned to swim. I learned to swim. Well, this is not true. I was traumatized and tried to, try, was trying to be taught to learn to swim by a friend of our family called Mr. Davies at Arm Baptist Church in uh, Arm, big city. That's A-R-M. It really is. All right. It's close to Monticello, if that helps. Monticello, Mississippi. And we had a church outing, and we were just kids. Mark and I were in the first grade, and Mr. Davis learned that we could not swim, and so he thought he would help us, and he picked us up, and he threw us in the creek. Buddy. Blind panic. You guys ever been in over your head? I'm thinking, I'm dying. And I was flailing, and I tried to holler. If you ever open your mouth to try to holler underwater, I would tell you it does not work. It, I was scared to death, and I just knew I was a goner. And I'm not kidding. I remember it graphic. I remember it clearly. I just knew I was a goner. And then all of a sudden, Mr. Davis reached his hand in and grabbed me by the head, <laughs> by the neck, and pulled me out of the water and looked at me and said, that's lesson number one. Now, I'm not going to get into his teaching methodology, all right? I certainly don't recommend it. But I'm going to tell you, I was as helpless it is possible to be. I was in an environment that I couldn't live in. I had pressures pushing upon me from all sides. I had no hope apart from someone outside of me coming and rescuing me. Can I tell you the glorious announcement that the shepherds heard? They heard, you know you need a Savior you know that your sins have separated between you and your God. Isaiah chapter 59, 2. 
You know that all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let me tell you the good news that he gave them. Hey, a Savior is born. A Savior, the Savior, the promised one. And by the way, the second part of that, very simple. He is Christ the Lord. Sometimes we will say, have you made Christ the Lord? And can I tell you, we need to quit saying that. Because you didn't make him Lord. God made him Lord. He is Lord. Now the question is, will you submit to him as the Lord that he already is? Will you bend the knee? Will you bow? Will you surrender your life to him? The Messiah who is Lord he is God. It means that we surrender complete control of our life to Him. The Savior has come, Christ the Lord. We need to understand this because this message is so often corrupted today. We definitely need a Savior. The world needs a Savior. Listen, we are saved from the penalty. What are we saved from? We're saved from the wrath of God against sin. We're saved from the penalty of, of sin. We're also saved from the power of sin. Because now we have new life in us. We have Christ's life. He who lived in every manner just as we did, yet without sin, gives us the power to not sin. And ultimately, He will save us from the presence of sin. We're saved from the wrath that is to come. We see that repeatedly throughout Scripture. We are rescued, delivered, spared, and saved by the grace of Almighty God. We'll pick up in verse 12. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. And lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying what we just sang earlier today. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Reason to praise indeed. Imagine the sight. By the way, don't get too inured to this. Don't get too comfortable with this. Don't say I know the story. I know the story. Think it through. Bring it to your context. Imagine what they went through. The shepherds gave a wonderful picture of how we're to respond to the good news. We've seen the recipients, the shepherds. We've seen the message, the clarity. The Savior, the Lord, is born. But how did they respond? <coughs> I'm going to pick up in verse 15, and we'll read through verse 20. When the angels went away from them in heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Now, I'm going to read through verse 20, but I'm going to do it a piece at a time. This is fascinating to me. Can you imagine what it would have been like out there? You're taking care of sheep. Now, by the way, when I talked about the shepherds being the lowest of the low, that doesn't mean these guys were the worst in their community. They could have been very devout and very close to God and walking with God. We're given no indication of their character. We're only given their role and their responsibility. But let me tell you what excites me about these guys. When they had this revelation from God, get that. That's important. When God spoke to them and said, hey, the Savior is born. When they had a revelation from God, they didn't argue. They didn't debate. They got together and they said, hey, let's go see this thing that the angel has said. Not let's go see if what the angel said is true. But let's go see this thing. Now, I've got to tell you, the word thing, I hate the translation there. Because in Greek, it's the word rhema. Anybody familiar with the word rhema? I've shared it with you before, I think once, about 14 years ago. So I expect you all to remember it. 
But there are primarily two words for word in the New Testament. There's logos, the expression of God, the thought, the word, the reality. And then there's rhema, which is a specific word, typically to a specific group of people. The illustration I used before is I can tell you with all sincerity and genuineness, I love you. I love you. I'm thankful to God for you. But I can also tell you that when I go back there, it, or, I don't know, Suzanne, are you in here or are you back there? She's here. When I look at Suzanne and I go sit beside her and I put my arm around her and I lean over to her and I say, I love you. It's a personal word specifically for her. Okay? So that's the difference between Logos and Rhema. So what they're saying is this word, this truth, this reality. Let's go see this reality. They got revelation, and the first evidence right off the bat is that they believed it. They believed it. They, can, they, got, they put their heads together, and they said, let's go see this rhema that is true. Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this rhema that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They, they knew it. God had given it to them. We got revelation, and then we've got belief. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And as the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, and the shepherds returned, glorifying God and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. Here's the response. After the revelation, they believed it, first of all, but then they embraced it. What did they do? They went and found, according to the clear instructions of the angels, the place where Christ was. This is how you'll know what baby it was, but they had to go through the town. They had to search, and they found the babe where he had been born, in a stable, in the place where animals were kept, laid in a manger. They believed, first of all. And then I believe that it's very simple for us to understand from the text that they acknowledged that Jesus was the Savior they that was born. They embraced the truth. The message was further verified when, in fact, they found the child exactly where the angel said he would be, which meant that this was not some sort of earthly situation going on, but heaven and earth was involved. They believed and they embraced the truth of who the Christ was. Can I tell you, we need to get this. There comes divine revelation. There is belief and then they embraced the truth. And then what did they do? They left. Matter of fact, by the way, I'm going to use a little sanctified imagination here. Can you imagine what that was like? I've never given birth to a child. Okay. But I've been there when two of mine were born. And I can tell you right now that Suzanne probably was not ready for a full conversation and a lot of guests immediately after the baby was born. Um, here's Joseph and here's Mary. The angel makes the announcements. And all of a sudden, here come this group of shepherds. And I already told you they smell bad. They're rough and they're dirty. They're coming out of the field. They look and there's the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, wrapped in those cloths. The babe is laid in a manger. They stumble in the room and they want verification. They want to see this thing, this rhema is true. Can you imagine the conversation that took there that night? I can imagine Joseph pushing his way to the front of them and saying, watch up, back up. Hey, who are you and why are you here? 
And I can imagine them just kind of talking over each other. We were out there working, and the angel came, and he made this announcement. And all of a sudden, the whole sky lit up, and there were angels everywhere. And they were saying, glory to God in the highest. And they told us the Savior was born, the Messiah. They even told us where to come. And we've come, and here he is. And I imagine the question started to flow. Who are y'all? How did you get to be involved in this? We saw an angel. Did you see an angel? And I can see Mary telling, oh, yes, telling about Gabriel's message to her. And I can see Joseph saying, man, you can imagine, I was really surprised when I found out Mary was pregnant. But, yes, God spoke to me, too, in sharing his story. And the Bible shows a radical change in the demeanor of these shepherds. They came to verify that this word was true, and they embraced it. They believed they embrace, and then when they left, buddy, they went about telling everybody what they had seen. They woke people. I guarantee you they woke. I'm, I, I won't guarantee you. I think they woke people up. I think they were used to being loud and obnoxious. You guys know anybody like that? And now they're all of a sudden overwhelmed, overcome with the good news that God chose them to be the messengers, to make the, the, message, the message delivered to them first. And now they get to share. And the Bible says that they went throughout the village sharing. And you know they did. And people were amazed at the message. You get the, you get the flow, right? God's revelation, their belief, their embracing of the truth, and then their sharing and passing on the truth. I'll tell you something else that I think is fascinating in this text. Not only could they not keep quiet, not only were they filled with joy and had to share, but we get a picture of Mary in verse 19 where it says, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Mary ponders. What does that mean? I remember as a kid memorizing this passage of Scripture, and I had no idea what pondered meant. And I asked Mom, of course, my uh, my greatest theological teacher as a child growing up. Mom, Mary pondered them in her heart. What does that mean? My mom was raised on a farm. And mom said, well, that means a thought that you keep having over and over and over again. It means like when you hear something and you think, well, that's too good to be true. And so you think about it more. And you try to pick it apart. And you try to understand it. And you just try to go deeper and deeper and understand more clearly all the things that are happening. Have you ever been somewhere and events just overtook you so fast that you couldn't follow everything that happened? And you got home and you began to remember, well, this happened and that happened. And that's what this meant. And that's what that meant. She said that's what Mary was doing. Mary was remembering and reminiscing. And she was going deeper to understand all that was happening to her. At this stage of her life. Can I tell you something? When God had reveals himself to you and you believe. When you embrace truth by the surrender of your life to the Savior. You want to share people. But the next step to that is to go deeper. It's to understand what has happened to me. Why am I different? Why do I think differently? Why are my desires changing? What are the implications of Christ the Lord being my Lord, as I live and surrender continually my life to Him. There's a process here of going deeper in our walk, I think, that's exemplified by Mary's example. The last phrase about the sheriff, uh, sheriff, the shepherds, and we'll be done. Verse 20, the shepherds returned. 
How did they return? They went back out to the field, by the way. They went back to work. They returned, but they returned different. They returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. All they had heard and all that they had seen, they were glorifying and praising God, which is why we gather here today. You guys know that, right? We gather here to glorify. We gather here to praise and to thank God for what he's done in us. You see, the shepherds returned to the community and the job that they came in from, but they returned as radically different people. And what made them different, at least in this instance at this time, was their whole focus was upon praising and glorifying God. Dear friend, will you be a shepherd this year? Will you emulate the response to the gospel that the shepherds gave? Here's the message. Unto you is born some 2,000 years ago in the city of David, not just any baby, but the long foretold one, the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. They heard and they went and they found him and they embraced him. And here's my question. Have you believed the message? Have you believed that you need a Savior? That you're facing the wrath of God for sin? That there's no escape that you can manage, but only God has provided a way of escape. And he has. How did he provide it? He sent his own lamb. Jesus, who thought equality with God, not something to be grasped, but releasing all the joys and the privileges of being a king in heaven. He humbled himself. He emptied himself. He lowered himself and took on the lightness of sinful flesh, yet without sin, a flesh and body, fully human, born of Mary, fully God, born of God. He came and he lived as a man to pay the penalty for the sin of mankind. To pay the penalty for yours. So that rather than facing the wrath of God against sin, you get the righteousness of Christ. You get grace poured out upon you, full of glory. You get to know God. Not just know about Him, you get to know Him. And though He doesn't save you from all of the little ills of the world, you know what He does save you from? He saves you from going through them alone. He saves you from depending upon your own strength. He saves you from from all of the things That his absence brings. Remember what the message is? Emmanuel. God with us. Isn't that great? Have you embraced him? Have you surrendered your life to him? If so, hey guys, where's the joy? Where's the joy? Remember the shepherds, their excitement? Where's the joy? And I will tell you, joy is difficult to sustain. (laughs) Because what tends to happen is you get saved and you're so excited and you tell everybody that you know and you get baptized and you publish it. And then over a period of time, scripture reading is hard and prayer is a discipline and I meet Christians who don't reflect Christ. And life gets hard and all of a sudden Christianity is something I do and don't do really well. And we lose fact, we lose the truth. That Christianity is Christ and his life in us. Not only what he's done, but what he's doing and what he desires to do now.
And so how do we maintain that joy? We do like Mary did. We ponder these truths. We search the scriptures. We get into the word of God. We learn the reality of who God is and who we are and what God has done. And then we do like the shepherds. We exemplify God by continually responding to him and glorifying God and praising him. A life continually transformed. So where are you in this journey? Where are you in this journey? May we follow the model, the example that the shepherds have given us in our response to the wonderful message that unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Father, thank you. Thanks for the message that we have. Thanks for choosing the shepherds. I wouldn't have. But in your wisdom, you did. Thanks for turning the world upside down through the message you delivered to them and that they shared. Father, if there, for those here who need the message of grace, for those here who need the revelation that they need a Savior, I pray that you'll convince them of that in their heart. I pray that you will draw them to you, that you will convict them of sin and righteousness and ju- judgment. I pray that you will reveal to them that Jesus Christ is the way, the only way, He is truth and he is the life. And no man comes to the Father but by him and by surrendering, by yielding, by confession and repentance. Believe, believe, really believe. Believe and change, repent. And Father, then for those of us who know you, will you restore to us joy? The joy of the announcement, the joy of the reality. May we never get satisfied with where we are in our walk with you. But help us to grow and deepen. In your name I pray. Amen.